Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast brings in authors and various experts to help writers of all genres incorporate more authentic cops, crimes, and criminals in their stories. For this episode, acclaimed international bestseller and recognized philanthropist Steve Barry steps into the interrogation room to try to clear up a few things about his writing and craft. Steve Barry is the New York Times and number one bestselling author of 20 novels, the latest of which is entitled The Kaiser's Web. It's the latest release in his Cotton Malone series. His books have been translated into 41 languages, with more than 25 million copies in print across 52 countries. They consistently appear in the top echelon of the New York Times, USA Today, and Indie bestseller list. History lies at the heart of every Steve Barry novel. That's among the passions that he shares with his wife, Elizabeth, which led them to create History Matters, a foundation dedicated to historic preservation. Since 2009, Steve and Elizabeth have crossed the country to save endangered historic treasures, raising money for local preservation efforts, and conducting popular writers' workshops. To date, more than 3,500 students have attended those workshops, which have raised more than $1.5 million for preservation efforts. Steve's devotion to historic preservation is recognized by the American Library Association, which named Steve its spokesperson for National Preservation Week. Among his other authors, he's also earned numerous writing awards, including the Anne Frank Human Rights Award and the Silver Bullet bestowed by the International Thriller Writers for his philanthropic work. He's been chosen both the Florida and Georgia Writer of the Year. He's also an emeritus member of the Smithsonian Library's Advisory Board. In 2010, an NPR survey named The Templar Legacy, one of the top 100 thrillers ever written. Uh, Welcome to Raiders on the Beat, Steve. It is an absolute honor to have you back here again and to talk about this latest addition to the Cotton Malone series. Thank you so much for being here. Good to be here. Thanks for having me back. Uh, For readers who haven't had the honor of an advanced copy of The Kaiser's Web, what do you want them to know about this latest installment? This is Cotton Malone's 16th adventure, and it's it's, it's kind of exciting because I've been wanting to put him into an adventure that emanated out of World War II for a long time. Mm-hmm. But I just haven't been able to come up with the right plot, the right thing. And about four years ago, I was researching something else and I stumbled onto something that happened in late 1944. And I didn't know that happened. I'd never heard of that before. And I did some more work on it and found out that it, it was true. It actually did occur. So, uh, so was born the Kaiser's Web, and it deals with two candidates who are vying for the chancellorship of Germany. They're in a tight race, and they each know secrets about the other, and there's a lot about those secrets that intertwine one another. It all emanates out of what happened on the night of April 30th, 1945, underneath Berlin in the Fuhrer bunker. This is not a book about Hitler surviving the war and the mm-hmm. rise of the Fourth Reich and all that stuff. This is not about that at all. This is about something else entirely. It's about another person who was in the bunker that night, a person who disappeared that night mm-hmm. and who has never been seen or heard from again. And we know we have no idea whatever happened to him. And that is Martin Bormann. And Bormann is the one who did something in late 1944 that still could influence the German elections today. And that's what Cotton gets caught up in. It's a, it's a fun adventure. It takes him to South America, South Africa, Switzerland, back to Germany. These are all places I've been wanting to send Cotton. And so uh, I had a lot of fun with this book. 
Now, I, I have about 18 questions that popped into my head that I absolutely want to know based just on what you've already said. And I, I, I want to go dive into a bunch of archives and try to help find this guy or find some record of him um, in addition to, to reading the story. It's absolutely incredible the, uh, the intense feeling you get of discovery when you find something like that in a historical record. It is fun when you get, come across something like that. And then when you start, then when you find out that it's real and mm -hmm. it actually happened. Mormon is fascinating because supposedly they found his remains in 1973, I think, but they declared him dead and then they uh, burned the remains and scattered <laughs> the ashes into the ocean so that we don't really have a way of checking any of that. Yeah. Why would you so, not do that? Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, why, why was it necessary to do mm. all that? You know, but uh, that's the problem is Borman vanished. And by the way, Borman, if he had been in charge of the Third Reich, we would have been in a lot bigger trouble. Hitler was a dangerous, evil person, but he was also an idiot. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't very bright in military matters, and he just wasn't good at governing. Mm -hmm. But Borman was good at all of that. Oh, wow. And, and he would have been a much, much more formidable ally. I mean, I, I, adversary, I mean. You know, that's, that's, one of, that's one of the things that um, has always kind of intrigued me, you know, when you, when you sit around and play what-if games about history. Like, if you could go back in time, what would you change? And, you know, usually one of the things that people cite fairly early in those kind of dialogues are, well, I'd, I'd, I'd kill Hitler, or I would buy a bunch of his paintings so that he pursued that. And the reality is there were people around him who were far more dangerous to the world than he was. Absolutely. And Borman was probably the most dangerous of them all. He made a comment once. He said, clerks rule the world. Mm -hmm. And he's right. And he's right. Mm -hmm. Yes. And he, and he knew how to play the game. And he was really good at playing the game. And he was dangerous. He really was. And he got, a, he got out of the bunker. And we have no clue what happened to him after that. Oh, I'm uh, really intensely interested in getting the rest of this book finished so that I can find out how this resolves, or at least for Cotton. And uh, in already talking a little bit about finding these kind of records in the archives and, and that phenomena, that, that kind of spine-tingling moment when you realize you're onto something, how do you go about crafting that into fiction so that it's believable and also matches reader experiences and meets reader expectations? Well, that's the, that's the trick of, of this genre. Um, it's it you you have to be able to to mix the information with the action mm -hmm. and keep it all moving in such a way that it's entertaining because see I, I get accused all the time that I'm writing some kind of uh, political book or I'm making a statement or I'm my my personal philosophy is coming through in the novel that's that's could not be even that's so far from the truth because I write a novel solely to entertain. That's mm -hmm. the only reason I write it. I don't, I don't, I, I don't care about, you know, putting out my personal beliefs or whatever in there. I do care about the characters' beliefs. Mm -hmm. Yes. Because, you know, I've, I've created them and, and what they believe into. But it's, it's, it's about when you come on to something, which I call the ooh factor. It's the mm -hmm. thing you got kind of like, ooh, you know, and like I, it came about when I was writing the Templar legacy and I told people, well, I'm writing a book. My next book's about the Templars and everybody would go, Ooh. So you, you find this Ooh factor, this thing that people kind of go, Ooh, wow, that's pretty cool. I mean, really you serious that real. Yeah. That's what I look for. Once I get that, 
it doesn't always translate into a novel that I can entertain people over 400 pages with. Mm -hmm. This did, this actually did. It came into something that worked. It came into something that made sense. And I was able to, to, to work it in because my novels are about 90% to reality. Mm -hmm. I keep it as close to reality as I can. The 10% that I trip up is because it is entertainment and I have mm -hmm. to trip it up. And in, then I put a writer's note in the back that tells you where all that happened. Yeah, and on the, the political thing, I work really hard both on, on this show and in, in my writing to generally be apolitical. And I, I don't, you know, you and I are about the same age bracket. Uh, we've never talked about music before, but uh, one of my favorite um, favorite musicians is Dave Grohl of Nirvana and the Foo Fighters. And he did an interview a few years ago where uh, someone asked him, I think Rolling Stone asked him why he didn't more politicize his music and his statements. And he basically explained, he's like, you know, I want my music to be a unifying force of commonality. I want a conservative and a liberal to be standing next to each other at the concert, shouting the same words and singing together and not giving a damn about what each other thinks about politics. And yeah. I think that's one of the most important things that, that we as, as creatives can, can facilitate from an entertainment perspective is getting people out of their divisive realities right now. And I try to do that very hard. I, they did a study on my books a while back, and I, I'm 50-50 conservative liberal, 50-50 Democrat Republican, 50-50 nearly men and women. So, oh. I, And I go out of my way to try to write the books. Now, yeah, there are characters in my book that take political positions. There's no mm -hmm. question. But that's part of the story. Mm -hmm. It's the story that I'm telling. It's not I'm doing this because I want to show you what I really what I think. It's it's the I get accused all the time that uh, the president, you know, I have the president I have is Warner Fox, mm -hmm. the new president who took over right. for David Daniels. And I, I can't tell you how many emails I have received <laughs> saying that that is I named him that because of Fox News and I'm taking mm -hmm. a jab at Fox News. Warner Fox is a friend of mine from high school that I've known for 50 <laughs> years. And and I named him I named him that character in 2014, two mm -hmm. years before there was any presidential election. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I get amused when I see that all the time that these people yes. think that there's they don't really realize that it is extremely difficult to write a novel to entertain. Mm -hmm. It is nearly impossible to write a novel that entertains and makes a political statement. Yes. And, you know, there's a. Uh... I forget what the, the official title of it is, but the organization that um, promotes George Orwell's work, um, you know, they give a specific prize every year for political fiction that, um, that does both of those things because it is so rare. It's so, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's so rare and so hard. Yes. It's really hard. And, and, and my president is, is, is different. You know, Warner mm -hmm. Fox is a different president, but I did it on purpose because Danny Daniels was my president. I had to have someone different. Mm-hmm. I couldn't have the same guy. Why don't I just keep Danny if I'm going to do that? And so I had to have it. But but Warner Fox has evolved over the books and he's going mm -hmm. to make a big evolution in 2023. So mm -hmm. I wanted him to change and evolve as he as he went along. That's the fun of fictional characters. They you they they change. They they don't stay the same. They become different people. And that's you know, it just, it gets to me a little bit when, when people say, well, you know, I, I read your book, I got to chapter 10 and obviously you hate this and you hate that, you hate that. I'm <laughs> not reading you again. Okay. Well, okay, fine. If that's what you believe, don't read it again. 
Yes. Now, it's like you're reading off my notes, but uh, tangenting to the next question I wanted to ask about uh, Cotton as a long-running series, long-running character, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how that character came to be, what inspired him, how did you craft him, and how have you allowed him to change over time or kept him consistent in spite of the change around him? Yeah, he was born in Copenhagen. I was there in 2002. And this is when I found out that the Amber Room had been bought and I was going to get published in 2003, which was kind of amazing. After 12 years and 85 rejections, I had mm-hmm. finally made it. And I was crafting a, a book with this retired Justice Department. No, he wasn't retired then, an active Justice Department agent. And I had written 30,000 words of this book with Cotton Malone. And when I was sitting there in the Cafe Nordon in Copenhagen, right there in Hybro Plods, which is a busy square there, it was a lovely evening. The windows were open. I was sitting on the second floor. It was great. And he just popped in my head. He said, no, 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 no. Cotton Malone's got to be a retired Justice Department agent. He retired out early. He lives here. He has an old bookshop right over there in the square. Mm-hmm. He, he kind of came to me and I wrote down a lot of these notes on a napkin. And I, I thought I'd thrown the napkin away, but I found it a few years ago and I actually still have it. Wow. And, and I, I, he just sort of popped in. I went back home. I threw away the 30,000 words. I started the book over again and I wrote the Templar legacy. And that's what became, you know, the birth of Cotton Malone. He's now had 16 adventures. And in each book, I make a point to explore a new aspect of Cotton's personality. Mm -hmm. So there's something new that I've never done before with Cotton. Like in the 14th colony, we dealt with his deepest, darkest fear. In the Lincoln myth, we dealt with his inability to connect with Cassiopeia and, and an inability to, to, to connect with, you know, uh, in, a, in an intimate relationship. He just couldn't, he couldn't get through it. But he, you know, this book is the first time Cotton and Cassiopeia have worked together as a team. They're not fighting. They're not fussing. They're not anything. They are, they are two people who love one another, who are working together and, and covering each other's back. And I've never done that before with the two. And it was a lot of fun to see them do that. So Cotton Malone of the Templar legacy and Cotton Malone of the Kaiser's Web is a different guy. He has changed a lot in each book. And if you don't do that, you know, you, you, the reader's going to get bored. Mm-hmm. You know, you you gotta you gotta give him something new, something he's never dealt with before. The the uh, the Venetian betrayal was the first time he realized he may have feelings for Cassiopeia and uh, feelings for another woman after his divorce, and he's dealing with those feelings and how they're very strange to him. Mm-hmm. And so each book he has this growth, and I and I try to to make you know to make sure that I do that so that he becomes a very a fluid character, not a static character. And with all of your books being so deeply entrenched in history and uh, bringing some element of the historical record and the archives to life, I wonder if you've ever toyed with writing historical fiction. I love to write probably an historical fiction novel, but it, it just takes so long to do it. It would take, you know, it takes several years to write one. Uh, the research, which I'm used to doing, would be even greater. It would be a, it would be interesting uh, to write a Michener-like novel. Uh, I can't do it 
in lieu of Cotton Malone. Mm -hmm. I would have to do it in addition to Cotton Malone. And unfortunately, I can only write one book a year. My brain can only take one a year. So I'd have to literally stop Cotton and, and write something different. I would love to write a science fiction novel. I have one in my head that I've had for a long time that I actually could write fairly quickly. And I might sit down and do that. Mm. So I, I, I would like to try a few other genres. It'd be fun. But right now the readers want cotton and, and I like to eat. So I got to give them <laughs> Yeah, I like living indoors and uh, consuming non-ramen. There you go. That's right. Most of the writers that I talked to that I've interviewed on this show, most of them have had pretty... Um, pretty incredible influences on their writing and on their development of their, their craft and their process. And I wonder what uh, some of the influential novels or books or writers have been in your life that inspired you to become the, the bestseller that you are today. Well, I was a big fan of Ludlum. I read, I love, I have a, I have a complete first edition collection of Ludlum's books. And I learned, wow. a, I learned a lot from Ludlum. There's a lot you don't want either. He, he dictated his novels. He didn't actually write them. He would dictate mm. them. So they, they become a little wordy and they become a little, uh, a lot of dialogue uh, in there. But I still learned a lot from Ludlum. He was, he was really, really good at suspense. I learned a lot from Kussler. Mm -hmm. uh, I really did. He was, he was, he's good. I learned a lot from Forsyth. Uh, these are guys, Michener was my favorite writer of all. Of, of all writers and uh and unfortunately i can't write like he does mm -hmm. you, you know he, he, he his sentences were 200 words long <laughs> you know <laughs> you know today you know if you go 10 words that's long yes. so you know, it's a different style but he was magnificent he really mm -hmm. was he was the master of historical fiction he was good sharon k penman who just recently died was absolutely fantastic at it i learned a lot from her i put a writer's note in the back of my books because of her mm -hmm. because she puts one in the back of her books and did it and sharon was she was a fantastic writer she was right there with michener I mean, they were, they were right there on par with one another. So I learned a lot from those guys. I learned a, a lot of, of, how to, of how to do things. And then I, I had to apply them. And then I had to teach myself the craft of writing, which took about 12 years. Mm. Yeah, and that's uh, been a really consistent theme on this show is that for a lot of folks, a lot of creatives, it's about a decade of blood, sweat, and tears to become that overnight success that that people know by name and uh you know it's uh, it's a long hard road yeah and for those who don't know mine from the day i wrote my first word to the day i sold my first word was 12 years mm. so and then i had the 85 rejections during that time over five different manuscripts so mm. i have uh i had a it was a long long road for me to get published to finally make it and now you know I'm in 51, you know, 52 countries, 41 languages around the world. You just sort of pinch yourself and go like, wow, yes. you, know, yeah. you know, you just, it's hard to believe sometimes. Now, aside from your work with uh, your foundation, History Matters, one of the things that I most appreciate about you uh, and your work with the writing community is all the mentoring that you do uh, through organizations like uh, the International Thriller Writers. And I think that's, that's been one of the most surprising things to me about this community is that it's, for the most part, not a competitive cutthroat industry where people are unwilling to help each other. 
it's been the complete opposite of that. Absolutely. The, the thriller writers are very generous with one another. I mean, that's what Thriller Fest was all about when we gathered in July every year. Hasn't happened in 20 and won't happen in 21, but I think mm -hmm. they're coming back in 22. And we gather and the thriller writers are extremely generous with one another. I know that I've taught about 4,000 students. And I, at Thriller Fest, I would also teach Master Craft Fest, which is where it's an eight hour session with 10 writers all day long. Uh, and it, you know, I, you know, people helped me. So it was my turn to help back. And I did my part. Now, in terms of history matters, one of the things that's uh, kind of caught my attention this year is the correlation between the, the silences that exist in history and um, a lot of smaller or, or less documented histories not making it into the archive or into the records for whatever reason. And one of the things that strikes me as most important to combating that is local historical preservation. And uh, I wonder what History Matters has been able to do uh, this year with all of its work, especially in relation to the, the COVID pandemic. Haven't been able to do anything because we have to go to those places and we have to be there on the ground and we have to have gatherings to raise the money. Mm -hmm. so we've been shut down in 20 and 21, pretty much. Uh, History Matters functions because a group like a local historical society will get in touch with us. An example would be we had a, a cemetery uh, in um, North Carolina, mm -hmm. and it was an old cemetery. It was in really bad shape. Uh, they called us. Uh, we went up there. We taught a writer's workshop. We raised a few thousand dollars, and that money was used to clean up and repair the cemetery. So we have to we have to go to the community, and we have to actually raise the money through either a, a dinner, or a lunch. Mm -hmm writer's workshop where all the money we raise at that event goes to the historical project. We've raised a little over $2 million for various projects, about 80 projects around the country. But the, for 20 and 21, unfortunately, we shut down. We're looking at 22 now and beginning to get back in the saddle and hopefully we'll be back going next year. Are you already looking at a list of prospective projects for 22 or are you taking submissions at this time from? No, we'll take them. We'll take any, send them on. We've got, we already have some, but we'll take more. We are very selective now what we pick because see, I, I, I pay my own way to go to these things. Mm -hmm. So no, I don't get a dime out of this. So I have to pick the right project that we think will rate will be that the, the local community is behind, the local organization can handle that, you know, that is a good effective use of time as well. Mm -hmm. We pick the, you know, we talk to the organizations, we see what they have in mind. And then we pick the ones that we think are going to, uh, are going to be able to, to do the work and put it together and make it work because you, it's got to be organized locally. We don't do any of that. We just show up and then we tell them, use us however you please to raise money. I greatly appreciate you making time to come on the show and, and talk about all of uh, all, all of your works and your effort, your mentorship and, and history matters. And I'm incredibly grateful for your time and expertise, sir. It's always an honor having you. Thank you. And then the book's out now and they can find out more about me or my books at steveberry.org. You've been listening to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast to the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been international bestseller and acclaimed novelist, Steve Berry. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.